Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is my document. <laughs> we don't have to hit literally any 22 pages! <laughs> Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. My name's Phoebe. I'm Emily. And this is our first episode. We'll be discussing The Lightning Thief today, but some quick context before we jump in on what this podcast is going to be and who you're listening to right now. Emily and I are both longtime Percy Jackson fans. We both read them in middle school as they were coming out in the mid-2000s and are coming back to the series now that we have the tools to analyze them. Yeah. And so for me, I actually started off as a huge Greek mythology fan long before Percy Jackson came into my life. And I followed that obsession all the way through getting an entire degree in Greek and Latin. So coming back to these books is really fun for me because I get to kind of know a lot more of the historical context of what I'm reading. And I think uh, it's really interesting to see what Rick does with them, too. I'm also coming at it now as somebody who writes books of my own and also writes a bunch of other things like poetry, musical theater. How about you, Phoebe? I'm a writer too, as well as a story consultant and dramaturg, which basically means I work with writers in television and theater throughout the creative process and offer them notes on structure and characters and themes and generally offer analyses that will help them on the next rewrite and for fun a lot of that energy ends up getting directed back at the Percy Jackson books because it's my favorite book series. I'm also an artist and we'll be sketching as we talk about each of the books and those drawings will be posted along with the podcast. So this podcast is going to be a combination of all of that to dive deeper into the series than we ever have before, joined by some special guests along the way as we reread the books through Heroes of Olympus and Trials of Apollo, and every short story in between in chronological order in preparation for the Disney Plus adaptation, and we'll eventually break those episodes down as they come out too. 
We're starting with The Lightning Thief today, even though chronologically there's a short story that takes place before that, just because it feels right to start here and reread that short story probably before The Last Olympian. Yeah, which I am quite excited about because I actually have not read any of the short stories before. So when we discuss those, that'll be kind of my first reaction. And I also have read almost all of the books across the now three main Greek mythology-based series. But I have not read the last two Trials of Apollo book either. So please don't spoil those for me. I have read the third one. I know what happens. I know. But those last two, I'm going to save for the end as well, because I have a lot of thoughts on Greek oracles, so I'm very excited. And um, the way this will work, if you're reading along with us as well, we'll tell you which next book or short story we're going to be analyzing in the following episode that we post. So if you want to read along, you absolutely can. But if you don't want to read along, that's okay too, if you're just getting back into this series as well because of the new Disney Plus series, or if you've never gotten into this series before and are interested in learning some historical fun facts. So are we ready to begin? Yes. Let's get into the lightning thief. Now, let's do a rating scale here. On a sliding scale between zero and it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. How does this first line rank to you in the grand scheme of first Mm. lines of literature? Mm. I think it's up there with who's there from Hamlet, I think. Who's there? Yeah, I would say... um, what are my other favorite first lines? I'm not really a first line girl. I'm not going to lie. Like I, I, they're the bane of my existence as a writer. And I think one of the most interesting things about this first chapter is that in a lot of books in general, but especially books written for younger audiences, so like young adult and middle grade, um, they tend to start right away with their inciting incidents. But here, we don't actually start with action. We don't even start with um, setting, not even really by using explicit character information say like you know those books that start like Anna was raised from the age of 10 with one singular you know what I'm talking about (laughs) yeah we start it with a warning yeah with if you start to recognize yourself in these pages your life is going to change for the worse which begs the question of why he's telling this story in the first place (laughs) because it's not going to help anyone anyone who it might have helped he's trying to warn them away (laughs) So why is he writing this then? If the people he's going, he's writing for, you know, they're the very people that this book puts in danger. Yeah. I really do want to know what made him tell his story. Yeah. Like that's, story is such a huge thing in this book series. Like every character has a different relationship to it. But Percy says here that he doesn't mind if you think his entire life is fiction. In fact, he prefers it almost. He prefers it. And whether you know his story isn't a concern to him at all at this point. You don't have to hear it and he'd prefer you didn't. Yeah. And that attitude towards story and the glory and attention that might come from having your story told compared to some of the other characters is going to be really interesting later on. Like glory seeking and the want to create something that will leave you remembered. Percy doesn't have any of that when we first meet him. Yeah. I think that honestly as a theme is really fascinating to me personally as well because the Greek word for glory is kleos and it's one of the oldest expressions we can date back into the Indo-European. So for context, basically Indo-European, specifically Proto-Indo-European is the name of the language that historical linguists have theorized that is kind of like the top of the evolutionary umbrella for pretty much every European language that we can think of all the way through, not just Europe, but it's called Indo-European because it extends all the way into Sanskrit, like that far east. 
But the word kleos, specifically paired with the word aptitom, so kleos aptitom is in the Iliad as a phrase, and it means undying glory. And we can actually date it all the way back because it has exact linguistic cognate phrases, which just means it's literally the same words, just with the different sound changes of the language and the same grammar. And a bunch of those different super ancient languages, which means they all had to originate from a starting point before the written word, which is pretty cool. But this concept of glory is what I'm trying to say is really baked into the linguistic and the societal makeup of what we consider Western civilization. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And to me, studying it, it kind of is really clear that this concept of kleos and this concept of wanting your story told, that is something that is really, really markedly part of that entire society that has trickled down into most of the languages and cultures that have emerged from them, which would be most of what basically the entirety of mainland Europe and everywhere else, you know, those languages have gone in diaspora and cultural diaspora as well. To me, that is one of the founding pillars and one of the oldest traceable poetic devices, for example, like, you know, since people were starting to tell stories, they were starting to want their story told forever. Hmm. Yeah, and it's such an essential part of so many of the Greek heroes, I feel like. Mm. So that'll be interesting to get into later when we start talking about like what makes a hero in these books. Another thing I think is really important to focus on in these first couple of pages is Percy's relationship to agency. I feel like that's all over this first page. There's this persistent feeling that our narrator has very little power in the story he's about to tell, even before we meet him, between... I didn't want to be a half-blood, and the fact that he's warning you that you will no longer be in control once you realize that you're like him. And also his inability to stop you from reading his story. He very clearly does not want you reading this, but you're going to anyway, because of course you are. And so this entire first page starts to feel like Percy being like, no, I'm trapped inside the book, but you can still escape. But yeah, that lack of agency and how much or how little control Percy has in his own story throughout these books is something that's going to be major to keep an eye on as we move forward in this series. And the same goes for a lot of the characters um, and their relationships to agency. Yeah, just all of the different kind of, you know, because when, again, coming back to it from the, the writer angle too, like whenever you're writing characters that are all grappling with the same themes, you know, you kind of want to make a conscious effort to show all of the different facets of a theme, of a way it can impact a person, of a way a society can impact a person if that's what you're going for, which I believe Rick is absolutely doing. And the way he does that is so interesting because there's so many ways they intersect and are similar for a lot of these characters. And yet they all have different definitions of like home and what it means to be a hero, which I find really, really cool. You brought up something about the first page with this being sort of a unique introduction to a middle grade story. And I think that Percy is also unique himself among middle grade protagonists (laughs) with his pessimism and his anger, and the fact that he seems like he's been like that for a very long time, despite being 12 years old. Yeah, that is, yeah let's unpack that a little bit more, or let's talk about that a little bit more, because he, he does start this story angry. I mean, like, between struggling with school and the way that, even at a school for troubled kids, it only punishes him for acting out and never makes any effort to support him, <laughs> and his upbringing. You know, growing up in a poor part of Manhattan with an abusive stepdad and a mom who had him when she was probably younger than us. 
Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, do we ever get Sally's age? Actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, in Trials of Apollo, Apollo says that she seems like she's probably about 40 years old. Okay, so she probably had him when she was in her early 20s. Mm. And she has a difficult life of her own. Yeah. So all of this, it, it adds up and leaves him so tired of the life that he's been living. You know, like, nothing is simple for Percy or easy and how little opportunity he's had and that Sally's had at the start of this book is a major part of why he looks at the world so cynically. Yeah, because he only really in his life has, to this point, two kind of authority figures or parental figures that he sees um, as actually encouraging him and being positive influence his life versus negative. Um, that being his mom, obviously, because she's the best. And Mr. Brenner. Mm -hmm. Like the only teacher ever in his life that Percy feels like has understood him. Not even understood him even. Like just believed in him believed in him believed that he might actually be able to do the things that he, they were telling him yeah to do. And, and you know what? that's even what i'm hitting on it's not even like authority figures that like him it's people who believe in him mm -hmm. like i wouldn't even say like i don't even know if grover falls into that category in these first few chapters like i think grover likes him as a friend but i don't think he truly believes in him in a way but that's not Grover's fault. I don't think Grover believes in himself either. I think it all comes back to the fact that Grover doesn't believe in himself. Yeah. And that he, you know, once knew someone who was a little too much like Percy and it didn't work out very well. Yeah, like I think coming back to these first chapters, it is kind of apparent that like for Grover, like Percy is a friend and also, you know, a responsibility that I think in his heart he feels like he's not ready for. Mm. Like he is a great friend and that's their main relationship, I would say, for these, at least these first few chapters before he gets to Camp Huck Flood especially. But he, he doesn't believe in Percy as his own person and as his own hero, really. And those are really the only three positive people in Percy's life that we're introduced to. Yeah, but I think Grover is also, he's the type of person that gets caught up in his worries and caught up in his fear. Yeah. And so it just feels like it's inevitable that Percy's going to go badly for him and i think you can see that fear from grover most clearly in the scene with the faints yeah oh for sure can we skip there oh yeah let's let's talk about that moment where because one thing that actually again really is fascinating to me about this moment is it's one of those great scenes that is so suffused with tension but i think the ending of the scene might feel a little lackluster if you aren't familiar with the fates and who they are and what it means. You know, Grover kind of acts as a great, like, you know, to be honest, Percy is that person at this point. Like, he does know a little bit about Greek mythology canonically because of his class, but it builds and builds this tension of ominous something, and then nothing really physically comes of it, right, for the characters. Mm -hmm. They just see a couple of ladies snipping some yarn. That's it. That's the climactic finish of this scene. Yeah. <laughs> and... I uh, when I was rereading this, right, like I was taking notes and stuff, I sat down and the only note I wrote for this scene, but in all caps, was, what does this mean? <laughs> because I was sitting there thinking about it, and I, you know, I was, I was running through my head of like, what, is, okay, right, because if the fates are snipping the yarn, it means they've decided something. A course has been set, right? But I don't know. It happens so early. It happens before... Yeah, I have a theory about this. Okay. <laughs> the bus breaks down and the fates appear and seem to decide to cut this thread. The moment that Percy asks um, 
what exactly are you protecting me from to Grover? And I think it must be because this is the moment that Percy warned us about on the first page. Like, this is his awakening moment. Because in this moment, Percy hears Grover say, I have to protect you, and knows that that's completely ridiculous because Percy's the one that protects him, but instead chooses to believe him and asks, what are you protecting me from? It's him realizing something about the world and he can't come back from that. Which means that he now has to go to camp now instead of when he's older like Chiron wants him to. And he has to be the one to answer to the summer solstice. And he has to meet Luke and Annabeth. And parts of the ending are already written here on page 25. So first question is, do you think it means that if he doesn't make this decision, he's not the hero that's going to fulfill this prophecy? No. The ultimate prophecy, by the way. The, 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 what's it called? The great prophecy. The great prophecy. That one. I think he definitely could easily still be that. It's more that the fact that he goes to camp now instead of later changes things about the ending. Because mm. I'm asking that also because, like, you know, throughout the rest of the series, there are several other players that could assume the fate of Percy. Mm-hmm. So does him deciding to go to camp now mean that, you know, it obviously means he has to answer the solstice because deadlines, but... Does it mean he's the chosen one? Or does it mean something else? (laughs) Do you remember what else we know this thread means? Well, I mean, I remember, like, there's this stuff (laughs) from Titan's Curse that that happened. Oh. Is there... I'm going to be careful (laughs) with what I say then. Oh, no. (laughs) I think it means that he learns things and meets people who he might not have if they'd waited even a year later. Because I don't know if he'd even have met Luke mm. if he hadn't shown up. That, like, that's, that's true, actually. That's the big one. I think that is the big one. Yeah, you're right. Hmm. And, and then my, my second follow-up question is, so you say you still think his fate is changeable. So if they snip the thread, but his fate is still in flux, ultimately, what does that mean was actually decided in this moment? <laughs> this is something that I can talk about later. <laughs> So we'll put a pin in it? We'll put a pin in that. Okay, we'll put a pin in that. Um, food for thought then, because I don't know the answer, but I guess Phoebe does. So I'm, ex- I'm interested to find out what it is. <laughs> we'll see if we come to the same conclusion as we keep reading. I think we will. I don't know about that. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> okay, so if what we're kind of deciding on now pending a lot more analysis is the thread is determining when Percy's going to camp, let's go to camp. Let's talk about it. Okay, because... So far, of the primary characters, we have been introduced to Percy, we've been introduced to Grover, and uh, Percy's mother, and Chiron. Although we don't know he's Chiron. Let's talk about the final of our main three that we get to meet once Percy arrives at camp. And remember how I was saying you all might have different definitions of what an important scene is. We're skipping the Minotaur. It's fine. <laughs> he, he fights the bull thing. Whatever. Let's talk about our fave. Let's talk about Annabeth. <laughs> um, so I remember you saying you did an interesting thing where you wrote down what everyone's first spoken dialogue was. Mm-hmm. So well, let, let's backtrack a little bit. What, what is Percy's actual first spoken line of dialogue? <laughs> um, Percy's first spoken line of dialogue is, I'm going to kill her. Great. Love that for him. <laughs> Very uh, hero-esque. I I know down the line, we're going to talk a little bit about um, Percy and his relationships with other Greek heroes in terms of like the way he 
both models and doesn't model their behavior, but that seems pretty on brand to that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kill her. Yeah. Very Hercules of him. Uh-huh. That's how Hercules' story started. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> how about a Grover? What was his first? It is, it's okay. I like peanut butter. Mm. So deflecting. A simultaneous attempt to de-escalate the situation and uh, it shows the way Grover is willing to compromise to stay out of trouble. Mm. Yes, yes. Which uh, Percy is not. (laughs) So we get to camp. We have fought the Minotaur, which is a pretty iconic heroic deed, right? Though not Perseus's, you know, of mythology, but Theseus's. So not his namesake. But we get to camp. We have won the trial. And we collapse on the porch, as we do, and we meet a girl. And what does she say? Uh, She says, he's the one he must be. Mm, So not you drool when you sleep, which is what I thought was her first line. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's he's the one he must be. Yeah. She is kind of waiting, right? She's sort of in a stasis. Yeah. I mean, it, it does speak to her stubbornness, because this is not the first time that she's done this to a hero who's collapsed collapse at their front door how many people has she nursed back i don't know but luke says that she does this to everyone who shows up at camp (laughs) she's literally like the funniest character in this book to me she honestly yeah she is i i don't know percy has his moments but what really struck me rereading this um now especially now that i've read a lot more ya annabeth is very much almost a familiar character to me um because in many ways she exhibits a lot of the traits of that kind of like yeah i'm the badass warrior bitch yeah she comes up as being quite real to me in a way that a lot of those characters don't because she's just so ruthless like she doesn't (laughs) stop being ruthless which i love like she doesn't you know you don't really get to see a lot of the kind of soft underbelly of her and even what you see it's not treated as like oh now she's vulnerable all the time Mm. you know it's she talks about her dad and she talks about where she came from but i still don't really feel like we know everything about her by the end of this book which considering she's 12 is pretty great it's pretty interesting (laughs) Yeah, she's got a lot going on. Yeah. And I feel like what kind of separates her from a lot of those characters is that she's like, she's not putting up a mask in any way. She's genuinely a little bit unapproachable. Yep. A little bit scary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it doesn't cross her mind to make herself anything else. Yeah. She's also just so bad at people. Yeah. I, I think that's really what actually makes her stand out to me is she is so she does not know how to interact with people in a way that like has any pretense like she'll just mm-hmm. go up and be like I'm using you for a thing get on yeah, board like her her treatment of Percy in this book is literally like a business arrangement yep <laughs> like she's networking <laughs> she is networking you know again coming back at it from a different perspective I think you know one of the reasons why Rick wrote this series was um, because, you know, he very explicitly wrote, like, that all of the campers are neurodivergent. And I think that level, like, the way Annabeth behaves and stuff, to me, comes off as very, like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. I know this girl. <laughs> yeah, I know this girl. I might be this girl. It's fine. Um, in a way that hits a bit different when you know you're kind of coming back to it i think and also what i what something that really struck me and stood out to me if we jump forward a little bit is the moment when annabeth says we're friends for the first time to percy 
Which happens um, when they're on their way to Vegas. That's the moment Annabeth kind of is like, we're friends. And Percy's like, okay, (laughs) if you say so, sure. Yeah, the way that Annabeth's mind is processing this relationship is a little bit different from the way that Percy is understanding it, I think. I I kind of love that. I love that it's not, it doesn't, you know, only Annabeth can understand all of the connections her mind makes. Yeah, and I wonder if it's because Percy doesn't totally understand his relationship with Annabeth and that she has trouble connecting with him like that, that even though Annabeth is the first person to actually sit with Percy and answer all of his questions, the first person Percy actually thinks of as a mentor and attaches himself to is Luke. Mm. So we're intro to Luke. What are, what are his first lines? Uh, Luke's first line is, now, now, campers. That's what we're here for. Welcome, Percy. You can have that spot on the floor right over there. Mm. I There's a surprising amount to unpack here, I think, actually. Because, you know, again, like if we're going like sentence by sentence, right? Like, now, now, Percy, just starting there. He's immediately like, a calming presence which in a book that's full of a lot of terrible people and very very dramatic monsters we kind of need that at this point we need somebody you know Chiron to an extent has been but up until this point Chiron's still been kind of cryptid like he still hasn't really given the whole like explanation of how what this world is and how it works so Luke immediately comes in as he's older he's cool yeah, he's very confident and demands a lot of, or commands a lot of respect. He doesn't demand it from the campers. He earns what he has, is the thing, right? Like, his main skill is being a sword fighter. That has nothing to do with who God his parent is, and everything to do with how hard he's worked. Luke is a, st- a stable presence. And, like you said, a mentor to Percy, in a way, I think, practically, that no other character is in this book. Yeah. Definitely. I think it's partially because Luke immediately takes care of Percy, which no one has ever... Well, besides Sally. Besides Sally, who is now dead. Oh, yeah. Luke immediately starts taking care of him and makes sure... You know, he calls the cabin a family. Um, He tries to make Percy comfortable, brings him food and steals him toiletries. (laughs) And, like, takes his time with him in a way that no one else really does. Mm. But I, I also think that Percy probably sees himself in Luke... Not just because he's sort of the ideal of what a camper at Camp Half-Blood should be, like what everyone here is striving toward, which will come back to bite him later, but because Luke's the first person to voice his resentment toward his father and to not treat the gods as something that is too big or powerful to criticize Mm. or name. Yeah. You know, he just says it freely and he allows himself to talk about the gods in a way that no one else here does, in a way that we only hear from Percy's narration voice. Mm. It's true. He provides kind of the only balanced perspective on everything. Because if you think about it, right, like Sally's perspective on Poseidon is only good. You know, Chiron, I would say has a more balanced view just in terms of like, you know, he kind of does bring up the fact that there are bad aspects to this history. But he doesn't really dwell. He's more just like, yeah, Greek tragedy, you know, it's a thing. Which is a whole thing I do want to get into at some point. Um can we talk about Chiron's perspective on all of this? We sure can. Oh, yeah. Chiron, Ky- to me, again, coming at this now from a more historical perspective, I have a whole lot to say. Most of which I might, I'm going to put a pin in just for a little bit because I want to talk about it when we get to Luke at the end. But let's talk a little bit about 
this world. What are the rules here? Like, how, how does it work? I'm just going to read what Chiron says okay. um, about Western civilization. He says that uh, Western civilization is a living force, a collective consciousness that has burned bright for thousands of years. The gods are part of it. You might even say they are the source of it, or at least they are tied so tightly to it that they couldn't possibly fade, not unless all of Western civilization were obliterated. The fire started in Greece. Then, as you well know, or as I hope you know, since you passed my course, the heart of the fire moved to Rome, and so did the gods. Oh, different names, perhaps, Jupiter for Zeus, Venus for Aphrodite, and so on, but the same forces, the same gods. Um, and then he also explains that Western civilization was only born once the gods warmed to humans. Okay, interesting. Well, I'm going to put a big pin in this, by the way, because I'm going to come back to this whole definition and evidence that Chiron puts forward for what the West is, because we know for a fact that there's a lot of stuff that predates everything he says that also ties into what I would define as the West. And uh, I have a lot to say. I have a lot to say about this. And you know who else has a lot to say about this who agrees with me, Phoebe? It's Luke. (laughs) Something that I noted while reading this part was how genuinely proud Chiron seems of where he comes from and that he has a very idealized version of Western civilization that lives in his mind. Um, Yeah. And what we're talking about Chiron as well, a quote I wrote down from him that is kind of part of this whole thing for me is when he's talking about his own immortality as well, he says, I'm here as long as humanity needs me, Hmm. which I, I bookmarked because I want to explore what that means a little bit. Because especially kind of when we're coming towards the end of these series, like, what does it mean that humanity needs a teacher of heroes? Yeah. Does he die with the West or does he die with humanity? I didn't realize he said humanity there because I have a whole thing to say about the way that this book treats humanity. Mm. (laughs) Because, you know, Chiron talks about all of these rules that originate with the God's relationship with humanity. And I don't think what Chiron believes that relationship is it either doesn't exist or or it never existed huh because chiron claims that western civilization was born because gods became fond of humans but gods are clearly not fond of humans in this book based on the rules of the world that they live in grover tells percy that gabe was so repulsively human that his scent masked percy from the monsters like gabe is the epitome of what humanity is according to the rules that the world relies on and then there's Chiron saying that Percy's sword can't kill humans because mortals aren't important enough to be killed by it. It's like the rules of their world function on the idea that humans are less than and are like something to look down on. And so Chiron saying humanity needs him while the story continuously separates humanity from the mythological world. It could be a remnant of something that no longer exists. Chiron believing in the inherent sort of goodness or rightness that he still seems to believe exists within the gods and their culture, that this is all for the sake of humanity, which it isn't, at least anymore, or that was never the case to begin with. Huh, that is, that is, I shouldn't say interesting, but it is. Because <laughs> I hadn't really thought of that before. Because to me, um, you know, in my own interpretation of Greek myth, I always think of the gods as being basically more human than humans in a way, because they operate 
on the extremes of human behavior as a rule. And they serve to kind of demonstrate and even idealize the extremes of human behavior, which I think is a really fascinating, you know, window into the ideals and the counterpoints to the ideals within the personalities of all of their gods um, and also what they choose to worship them for and how they worship them. So then it's a question of like, then is this, is it about, you know, the extremes of humanity kind of shrinking from the realities of it? Mm. I feel like we should, this is something we need to come back to periodically throughout because I'm very interested to see how Rick answers this question. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we're skipping ahead a little bit um, because I think we've already kind of unpacked a lot about um, Annabeth as a character, which we learn even more about um, in the Capture the Flag incident, and we get some mystery. Percy's claimed he gets his prophecy and sets out on his quest with Grover and Annabeth. Um. So we get to probably one of i mean it's an iconic enough scene that they cast uma thurman in the movie for it which i'm still not over like every time i rewatch that movie i'm like how did they get all of these people like so many star a-list stars like anyway so we finally have percy actually repeating his namesake story i think it's particularly interesting that uh we see percy recreate this myth Mm mm-hmm because we know Percy knows the stories of these heroes. Like, throughout the book, Percy's constantly saved by his knowledge of Greek mythology and remembers the stories of everyone. And so there's no way he doesn't see the parallels. Mm-hmm. And at this point, you know, like, in this moment, it's helpful to him. It's useful to recognize himself in these stories. But as we keep going, I want to keep an eye on how Percy responds to those moments where the story is played straight. Like, where we don't really subvert the story that Percy knows and instead repeat almost exactly what others have done, considering what Luke says later on. <laughs> and I think it, there's something to be said also for, you know, seeing yourself in your heroes. And he's able to do it um, in a way that it's quite literal. Because <laughs> he's able to really become his heroes for brief moments. Yeah. And to seeing himself in his heroes and, like, actually doing their deeds change the way that he sees them. And one... Last thing that I wanted to note um, before we move on is that this moment right after uh, we kill Medusa is the moment that Percy sends Medusa's head to the gods. And I think of this moment as when Percy finally takes a clear stance that like he isn't on this quest to help them. He's here for his mother and he's here for revenge. And that's it. Yeah. I think also sick of this being a one-sided conversation. Yeah. And I think that's probably why he jumps on this opportunity to direct his anger back at the gods. Yeah. Make contact and throw a punch for once. <laughs> and it, it, this moment comes because he remembers Medusa saying, do not be a pawn of the Olympians. And that's when he makes up his mind. And that word pawn will be brought up like all over all, all 15 of these books as they try to succeed with, you know, the gods and fates pushing them into position. You know what? I I just you just bring you bringing that up also just reminded me as well. There is another interesting intersection in this myth specifically because Medusa is a monster because of Poseidon. Yeah, and that also really weighs on Percy. Even when he's talking to her, he feels a lot more sympathy, like even empathy for her. He's like, yeah, my dad kind of sucks. Yeah, he genuinely seems to feel bad for her, and you know this is. Probably, I think, the first story he's hearing about his dad since learning that he's his dad. Yeah. And that that's, like, 
coloring his new idea of Poseidon in his head. That's a great point because, you know, he knows this story. And then the other thing he really knows is what happened with his mom. Mm-hmm. Which is, he basically kind of did the same thing to his mom in a less extreme way, right? Like, he abandoned her and, you know, left her as a single mom. He essentially kind of used these two women and left them changed. As weird as that comparison is, like, he's gotten the same story twice in different iterations now. And then circling back, now that I'm thinking about it, I always wondered, I, I actually was left thinking about the poetic justice of Sally at the end. <laughs> Uh But now that I've kind of talked that through, that makes so much sense to me. And I love it of like using. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Like She and Medusa in a way teaming up to just do, you know, kind of reclaim their own agency in their lives. So good for them. I mean, Medusa's dead. (laughs) (laughs) She did murder a lot of people. So, you know. Okay. Um, We're going to skip over St. Louis real quick. But I want to point something out. Okay. Because. I know we were just talking about Percy's attitude toward Poseidon, but St. Louis is the first time that Percy prays to Poseidon Mm. and like shows any faith really in his father after he learns who he is. And I don't think we've seen Percy's attitude change toward the gods at all at this point, but I mean, he's still somehow clinging to the idea that his father cares about him and that he came to see him when he was a baby. That's the real thing that he's holding on to is that like image of him in his head coming to see him when he was a baby. I mean... I just thought it was interesting that this moment when Percy prays comes at the end of the same chapter where we learn about Annabeth's dad. Mm. And their relationships to their fathers are just totally different. Annabeth's, like, he learns of Annabeth's total lack of faith in her father. Mm. And at the same time, her total faith in her mother, Mm. who she talks about with, like, a lot of reverence. And, you know, she talks about what's expected of Athena's children and is very devoted to her mother. And so he, like, hears these two opposing ideas of, like, how you should think of the gods, but also is probably able to see a lot of his experience with Poseidon in Annabeth's relationship with her dad Mm. and comes out of it somehow praying. I think tracking Annabeth's relationship with her dad, which I have a lot of opinions on, uh, and tracking when and how Percy prays is something I want to keep an eye on in this reread. Okay, moving on. Uh, Let's skip ahead to Ares and the trip to Vegas. I do want to point out um, the way that the gods are introduced consistently with their eyes Mm. and the visions that they inspire when Percy looks into them. Like, because first we got Dionysus who made Percy see madness and like body horror and grapevines strangling non-believers. Uh-huh. Um, and now when he looks at Ares, he sees blood and smoke and corpses on the battlefield. And I just really like this way of introducing the gods because they're like, they're human sized. And so like, how are you supposed to illustrate the power that they have? And the answer isn't like a big show of power. It's like the tiniest little thing. Yeah. Like in the smallest way without doing anything. Look how much power I have just by looking at you. I think um, the eyes also tend to be what all of the demigods have in common with each other, like as their defining trait. Like I know all the Athena kids that have gray eyes. And Percy has main character green eyes. Does Sally have stormy eyes? Is that a thing? I'm sure she does. I'm sure she she's does. Got, like, no, she's got electric blue eyes. Yes. Speaking of Thalia. Speaking of Thalia. Um, I forgot she had an appearance in this book. So... Something um, we haven't really touched on yet um, is that over the course of the whole quest, Percy is having a lot of dreams. Yeah. 
I originally had like breakdowns of every dream that Percy had. I only had them for one because I thought, well, I'm interested what your breakdowns are if you had any extra insight. Because for me, like most of them seem pretty straightforward, except for the one with Thalia in it. Specifically because he pictures her correctly. He knows what she looks like, at least some part of him. And so I had to sit there and be like, huh, how did this happen? I wonder if I kind of want to describe this part of the dream, at least, because I don't know how many people actually remember this. This is true. Yeah. We start out with a dream Percy's had before, which is um, all the kids are going out to recess, but Percy has to take a test in a straitjacket while the teacher says, you're not stupid, are you? Pick up your pencil. Which is clearly a manifestation of Percy's relationship yeah, you to know, Percy, his Percy ADHD has, and dyslexia. Percy has school anxiety dreams too. Um, but then the dream changes from what it usually is. And Thalia Grace, who is a long dead demigod and someone he's never met, <laughs> is sitting at the desk next to him, trapped in a straitjacket too. And she says... Well, seaweed brain, one of us has to get out of here. Oh, she calls him seaweed brain. Uh Uh-huh. And Percy thinks to himself, you're right, and wills himself to the edge of the pit he's been dreaming about for the whole book. Um, I'm going to stop there so that we can talk about that first. Because that, him and Thalia both being trapped. Yep. And him seeing her accurately. Because here's the thing, right? Up until this point, Thalia is the character that has been most explicitly made to be Percy's foil because of Grover. Mm-hmm. Because she was the child of the big three that Grover failed to protect. And I believe actually this dream kind of comes after, right after Percy learns about this too. Yeah, I really just love this moment for the Percy and Thalia parallel. Because I, to Grover and I think to a lot of people at camp, Percy is probably the Thalia 2.0. Yeah. Because of their personalities and yeah. the fact that they're the children of the big three. But yeah. there's also the actual parallel that we'll see from them that's... They're both characters who are burdened by Zeus and his brothers with something that no other children of the gods are going through. Mm-hmm. And so they have to watch as the world goes out to recess, basically, <laughs> while they're trapped inside. Mm. And we'll be able to talk about this later when we get to the Titan's curse. But um, another layer to this dream that Percy doesn't see and that we probably only see rereading that I won't spoil, I'll just allude to. <laughs> is that they also share a twin fate that we'll learn more about as we learn more about Thalia mm-hmm. and her story in the later books. But they're bound together at this point in a way that Percy doesn't know yet. But like, it's true. One of them has to get out of here. Yeah. This moment is like the culmination to me of her presence in this book because she feels like such a ghost in this yeah. book <laughs> because of like with Grover referencing her... Um, in chapter two and then the Annabeth and Luke obviously having their connection with her like she's constantly weighing on this book so much because Luke Percy is surrounded by her family yeah and so like everyone who he's connected to has this connection that's like whole in their lives that's been shaped by someone that Percy never knew and so she becomes like a ghost that's haunting everything and everyone around him and this is the moment that the ghost finally speaks to him Okay, so um, Percy escapes and finds himself eavesdropping on the lightning thief, the titular lightning thief, (laughs) Um, who he can't see or place the voice of, speaking to the voice that keeps coming to Percy in his dreams, talking about Percy and Poseidon playing right into their plan um, until they realize that Percy is listening and the voice responds by saying, 
oh, you want to dream about your quest and changes the dream again um, to Percy in what we'll learn is Hades's throne room in front of a throne of bones where he sees his mother frozen and bathed in golden light. Um, but when he reaches for her, he realizes he can't move and his hands are withering to bone. And then skeletons crowd him and drape him in silk robes and place laurels laced with poison on his head and he feels them burning into his scalp and the voice laughs and says, hail the conquering hero, and then Percy wakes up. Okay, that's really interesting. (laughs) It does strike me that my original, my initial thought on that is like crown of thorns a la Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) But it is also a Greek thing to get a crown of flowers, but the specifically like burning thorn thing. I think for me, this scene caught my attention this time. It always stops me in my tracks, but this time, the fact that they're proclaiming him a victor in this scene by giving him the laurels and like you know, they're draping him in silk and the, the, you know, they're offering him his reward, his mother. And then it the, immediately the victory turns sour and painful. Which is curious to me because, you know, theoretically, like, Kronos is sending him this dream. Yeah, and like, that's, that's the thing about the dreams that Percy's having in this book is that it's suggested that like every single one of them is coming from Kronos. Like, from the very beginning, Percy's hearing his laughter. And so all of his dreams are at least being manipulated by Kronos. And I, it makes me feel like, what what does Kronos actually expect from Percy in this book? Like, what does he want from him? What are his actual plans for him? Because it's actually, like, sort of unclear. There are so many contradictions and inconsistencies between what Kronos seems to want and what Luke or Ares seems to think that Kronos wants. I, there is something else that Kronos is trying to say to Percy in these books. He's reaching out to him on purpose. There's there's just, there's another layer here that I feel like I need to keep reading to uncover. And like even just to talk about it more to uncover. We can keep moving though. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> so now we move on to one of my, on the initial read, I was like, this seems fine. Perfectly enjoyable monster encounter. But on the reread... Are we skipping the Lotus Eaters entirely? Don't spoil it, Phoebe. <laughs> I was going to say, on the reread, this one monster encounter, I think, truly defines Percy as a character, at least for me. And it's not the Lotus Eaters. I don't really have much to say about the Lotus Eaters. We'll come back to that when we talk about Nico. Mm. It's Procrustes, which I know is probably a controversial opinion. However, there are a few things that really struck me with this scene in a way... That I was not expecting. So basically, he gets like kind of, sort of, almost attempted mugged by like these kids in like some alley before he goes into the Procrustes store. He immediately thinks to himself, "I'm gonna pull out Riptide, and if they're monsters, I'll know because I'll be able to kill them. And if they're regular mortals, I won't be able to kill them." But what really struck me was his zero hesitance on stabbing people. <laughs> The switch that kind of got flipped in Percy's mind already of like, what is harm? I can't harm the mortal world with Riptide. And that made me really think about the hero's relationship with mortals and the mortal world. Because he's really quite cavalier now about death and harming others, you know? Because in his mind, he can't possibly harm non-monsters. 
And further in the pro in the scene with Procrustes, the other thing that really struck me is how we don't see him think through, right? Like, oh, how do I, how did they get past this in the myths? How did they do this and that? He immediately looks at Procrustes strangling his friends and sees a solution to his problems. And that solution involves with zero hesitation, lopping a guy's head off. Like, yeah. That moment is striking because it's also the first time Percy really takes charge. Like the rest of the time, it's Grover or Annabeth taking charge in these monster encounters. I think it's it's partially because he's been forced to, at this point, think of the mythological part of the world as like 100% threat. And that's why his, I like his, he doesn't want to harm the mortal world. But at this point, anything mythological presents a threat to him. Yeah. And so I think that this is probably Percy falling back on a skill that he already has, but that we haven't really seen in action until this point, which is that he's very good at influencing people. Mm. And it's one of his greatest strengths, but he didn't use it much in this book until this moment. And I think that's part of why it's so striking, not just because he cuts off Procrustes' head, but because he manipulates him into the bed. Yes. (laughs) And he's he's really good at manipulating situations to his advantage. And it's a skill we'll see him default to a lot in the future as the threats become bigger and more dangerous and he can't just yeah. swing his sword at it. And I think, like, the fact that he does it here flawlessly. Yeah. <laughs> like, he compliments Krusty, he validates him, he separates himself from Annabeth and places himself on, like, Krusty's side. I'm wondering, do we see a kernel of this before this moment? Um, let's think. <laughs> I think maybe a little... Mm? No. I feel like all of the moments where we see this again are after this moment. Like this is a shift in the way that we're understanding Percy, I feel like. Okay. Uh, Moving on from Krusty. Let's talk about the underworld. Yeah. This depiction of the underworld is really neat, I think. The way it finds like horror in the fields of Asphodel and describes like the grass as flattened by eons of dead feet and the spirits trying to talk to Percy but all that comes out is that chattering sound like it feels so empty and sad I haven't read uh most of the myths where we end up in the underworld so I don't know how true to the stories this is there aren't many accounts where people like imagined what the underworld is like Uh, interestingly one of again for Charles of Apollo like one of the biggest ones was written um about the oracle of (laughs) Trophonius oh where it's, um, oh, who wrote it? I can't remember. I think it's um, Plutarch. He wrote a, so he basically like, wrote a fun short story about going to the Oracle of Trophonius and like walking around the underworld. And it's like, there's just like disembodied babies. It's horrifying. Like, oh, like he, and he goes, it's kind of, it's kind of like a precursor to Divine Comedy in a way. Um, hmm. Uh, but um, another one I'm thinking of is like the Hymn to Demeter uh, with Hades, the Hades and Persephone story where we get a little bit of a description. It's not described as a bad place in there. The The description itself, I always pictured like a more beautiful grassy field. Like not beautiful, but like just a grassy field. Well, to be fair, like, again, this is another thing that you don't really realize until you actually go. But like Asphodel is the, like, that's the weed that grows on the side of the road. <laughs> like they look pretty because they have flowers on them, I guess. But like they're, it's everywhere. And it's like this really dull brown of a stalk and it's quite dry and it's really tall and I didn't really get 
that aspect of the underworld until I kind of saw it for myself and was like, oh, I see. This is like the equivalent of like, we're from the East Coast of the US, so like it's the equivalent of like dandelions. I love that you didn't clarify that you meant that you went to visit Greece instead of the underworld. (laughs) I went to both, Phoebe. That's why they call it study abroad. Oh, of course. (laughs) So we get to the underworld. Yes. But before we can even make it to Hades, the winged shoes drag Grover across the fields and into a cave where we find the pit from Percy's dreams. And it tries to drag him in, tries to drag all of them in by speaking magic at that one point. Oh, yeah. What I wrote down here was the same question that I asked earlier, which is what was the plan? (laughs) I think just get him in with the bolt. With the bolt, but Cronus is still in pieces in Tartarus. I think the idea is maybe that like the bolt has enough innate power that he could blow that joint or something i i just think it's interesting that percy like keeps having these dreams that are obviously trying to lure him to cronus's side and like cronus says uh that he should strike a blow against the gods if the plan was always to just drag him into tartarus because we're assuming at this point that falling into tartarus would just kill him all right we escape tartarus and end up in hades's throne room right on and um so Later on in the series, there's a lot of talk about Percy's fatal flaw, which is that he would apparently give up saving the world in order to save a friend. Now let's discuss this scene in which the choice he is given is save the world or save his mom. Uh-huh. Okay. This is, <laughs> I'm, this is controversial, but I think that we shouldn't just take Athena's word as gospel. Like, we do that for some reason, reading the books, and just assume that she's right. Because from what we see in these books, or at least from what I remember from these books, this probably isn't his fatal flaw. Mm. Because it's like, in this moment, what stops him is the idea that his mom won't forgive him um, for dying, and that that'll make his mom, it'll make his mom upset. Like, he doesn't really care that the world will end, or that he'll have started a war just to save her. It's that he'll have damaged their relationship. So it's tied to his fatal flaw. But at the same time, like, if it's a fatal flaw, it's fatal. Like, he shouldn't be able to... It's something that's so a part of you that you'll die for it. Yeah. It takes a lot to overcome, but Percy just does it. Yeah. And so I just think that maybe Athena might... She might kill me if I say that, if I finish that sentence. But I think his fatal flaw might be something else. And as we reread, maybe we'll figure out what that is. But... It just doesn't feel fatal to me in the way that it's used in the in these books. Um, but I, I think it's a flaw of his. It's just maybe not the yeah. fatal flaw. It's not the thing that's going to make or break. I wish it was because it's a really great flaw for a character to have and one that I'd love to watch Percy genuinely struggle to overcome. But like, we'll, we'll talk about why Athena might have said that when we get to the Titan's Curse, I think. So, uh... Speaking of gods, are we ready to move on to... See, because here's the thing, right? Like, if you're reading this book, the underworld scene in a different book would be the climactic encounter. But it's not. The climactic encounter of this book is what happens next. Yeah, when Percy uh, makes it to Santa Monica, where he faces Ares. Yeah, he fights the god of war with a sword. Yeah. This man is 12. (laughs) He's not a man, he's a boy. And the first thing I noticed during this scene was just how badly Percy wanted the fight. 
Like, he goads Ares into fighting yeah, him and, and he, refuses to run. He does say that, like, Ares is aura. That, that is the other godly thing about them, right? We've talked about the eyes a little bit, but they also exude their kind of basis essence, which for Ares is, like, wanting to pick a fight. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with Percy because I don't see that in the other characters. Like, it's clearly, like, Percy is very influenced by Ares's presence, and it's probably because his anger sits yeah. right at the surface. Yeah. He also, I think in this scene also intentionally, he notices it's happening and then is like, I don't care. Yeah. He's he's <laughs> like, actually, I do want this fight anyway. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the scene where he sends Medusa's head to the gods in that it's his chance to throw a punch yeah. in a one-sided fight, um, except that this time he knows who to aim for. Yep. And he also then exhibits this main skill we kind of talked about in being able to actually do some damage using everything at his disposal to his advantage. Yeah, I think this moment is very explicitly that kind of culmination of all Percy's learned moment. He hears two voices in his head. Mm. Um, the first is Annabeth saying, Ares has strength, that's all he has. Even strength has to bow to wisdom sometimes. Which he ends up leaning on that advice and his talent at manipulating people as he coaxes Ares into following him into the water. Yeah. And then the other voice is Luke saying, get in close when you've got the shorter blade, get in close. And remembering both of these people who have really taught him everything he knows about this world is what ultimately lands him the final blow and i also i want to put a pin just another like quote i wrote down that i thought was interesting that uh, it comes from an earlier aries scene but i wanted to just mention it just kind of drop it while we're talking about stuff that's kind of people have said to percy about himself fighting the only aries quote i wrote down was him saying to percy you're only good at running away Ooh. Which I, I just want to flag that this happens and come back to it because I feel like that really intrigued me as a concept and I want to explore it a little bit more. Yeah. I once made a tweet that was a compilation of times Percy runs away or we talk about Percy running away and I think I missed that one. Yeah, we'll come back to it. Okay, so Percy lands the blow to Ares and Ares ends up bleeding and muttering and starts going after Percy and then the shadow passes over the beach. The world goes cold, sound and color drain. Like, Kronos stops him yeah. and saves Percy's life, probably. So again, <laughs> what does Kronos want from Percy? We need to, like, sit down and, like, map this out, actually. I'm really curious. Um, okay, so we stop Ares. We go to Olympus. Finally, we get to that 600th floor of the Empire State Building. Now, let's start with first lines. Yeah, these, these lines follow each other. Um, Zeus's first line is, Should you not address the master of this house first, boy? And Poseidon's is, Peace, brother. The boy defers to his father. This is only right. Mm. Their language there is quite striking, actually, to me, because it's quite archaic, the way it's all phrased. Like, yeah, and the other gods don't talk like that. It also reads almost like a translation of ancient Greek to me, where it's like kind of mm. stilted. Um, we have this scene where Percy returns the bolts and Zeus remains threatening and Poseidon remains totally unreadable and distant and both he and Percy don't really know what to make of each other. Zeus tells Percy that he doesn't like what Percy's arrival means for Olympus but spares his life and tells him to return home and Poseidon is left alone with Percy and they have not really a heart to heart but their first conversation. And there was one line that I wanted to note here which was Poseidon says, I am sorry you were born child. <laughs> I have brought you a hero's fate, and a hero's fate is never happy. It is never anything but tragic. 
so Percy returns home, and the scene that plays out here is honestly um, one of the scariest moments in this entire series to me. Mm. It's just so jarring going from one scene to the other, especially because right before Percy gets home, he's like walking through Olympus and everyone there is bowing to him. Yeah. And like, it's that, it's the moment where he truly kind of gets hero status, whatever that means. Yeah. And then it literally says, there's a page break and then it says 15 minutes later. Mm. It's not just jarring to us, it's like jarring to him to step back into that world in like the most violent way possible. Yeah. Gabe immediately wants Percy out of the apartment and threatens to call the cops and Sally argues with him and the argument escalates until Gabe raises his hand to hit Sally and Percy realizes that Gabe has been hitting his mother when Percy wasn't around to see it. Um, And Sally quickly leads Percy into his bedroom and I know you have a lot to say about I do. This chapter, so I'm going to let you take this. Something that struck me this time around reading these two scenes back to back was how weirdly paralleled they are. In a way, I was not expecting. Like, if we're talking about the roles the characters each play... Coming back to linguistics for a second. So... Zeus, uh, we actually know linguistically, derives from something like Dio, Dio Pater, which means Father Sky, who is the head of most Indo-European um, descended pantheons. But um, I thought it was kind of interesting that Zeus here and Gabe are almost in parallel to each other in a way. And they're both, in a sense, father figures, but not really at all in Percy's life. They are both people that you could call father, that Percy could call father, who are not his father at all, who he's never thought of as his father. Um, And then on the other hand, you've also got a kind of pacifying figure in both Poseidon and then in the scene with Gabe, his friend Eddie kind of, he speaks up for Percy, but he backs off immediately when Gabe kind of like, the dynamics are weirdly similar is what I'm trying to say. These scenes are... Because thinking about that dynamic between Gabe and Eddie made me think about Poseidon and Zeus in that Poseidon in that scene, he defends Percy, but not really. But he doesn't actually really stand up for Percy. Not in the way that Sally does, but it's also completely ineffective. In both cases, Percy can neither fight them nor reason with them. Like, the only thing that prevails in the end is kind of the ultimate greed of both Zeus and Gabe. That is what keeps Percy relatively safe in these encounters. When you mentioned that these were two scenes that you wanted to parallel, I wrote down Zeus's line, do not let me find you here when I return, versus Gabe's, I'll give you five minutes to get your stuff and clear out. After that, I call the cops. It just, when I noticed that, I was like, she's right. This is intentional. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right? It has to be. It really struck me, these two back-to-back, also because I think it really drives home the point that, you know, as a half-blood, Percy is not welcome in either of the places he should be able to call home. Yeah, and trying to find that balance. Safety and security are both things that I think Percy values above most things, and the fact that he can't have that because he exists within two worlds that are both so hostile toward him that neither want him there. The only place he can find safety is camp. It's camp. But at the same time, it's a huge point throughout the books that, like, you can't... Camp is the place, like, you know, with Annabeth, you know, camp is the place where she's been sitting, waiting around for her life to begin. Yes, that was a tangled reference. Um, <laughs> likewise with Luke, you know, when we kind of get into his scene in a little bit, like... 
he's also feels like he's in stasis in camp. He feels like he's powerless. He doesn't have agency. So the one place they can be safe. Yeah. I touched a little bit on like kind of Sally's, you know, kind of her ending in this book um, earlier, but she says something really interesting uh, in when she kind of pulls Percy aside. She says to him, if my life is going to mean anything, I have to live it myself. I can't let a God take care of me or my son. I have to find the courage on my own. Your quest has reminded me of that. I mean, I'm going to tie it back to agency again. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. Like, uh, this moment is important to me both as an inversion of the original Perseus myth, where Perseus uses Medusa's head to save his mom. And so this is, like, a take on it where it's like, no, I'm going to give her the power to actually do it herself. And it's uh, such an interesting line to have in a story about fate because Percy and all of his friends are not living their lives for themselves. No. And so if my life is going to mean anything i have to live it myself and like these kids can't do that yeah because you know comparing sally and percy she is able to regain agency after this yeah she's like totally fine after this she's doing (laughs) great so as sally reclaims her agency her son has less of it than ever before and is just you know starting that fight for it which won't end for a long time all right now we thought this was the end of the book when we were first reading it, right? Yeah, probably. Except. Yeah. I like almost forgot this was coming. Like I didn't forget. <laughs> I obviously did not forget, but like I kind like the narrative lulled me. I was like, all right, we're almost done. One more scene. Let's just go to camp and see our friends again. And we do. We see uh, Phoebe's best friend, Luke. Yeah. And you know, when we get to Luke's sword, I remember for the first time reading about Backbiter and I was like, whoa. Did you have that reaction when you first read it? Oh, I was like, cool. (laughs) Your best friend Luke has a cool sword. (laughs) No, I was still like totally like team Luke. I hadn't realized what was going on at that point. That was for me the first inclination of like, Luke is, Luke might be dangerous because of this huge emphasis that Percy places on the fact that he can't harm mortals. Yeah. And it gets to the point that when you get to Luke practicing with Backbiter and Percy's like, why do you need that? <laughs> and Luke's just like, aw, you're cute. It's kind of a, like a, rep- a physical manifestation of the other side of harm Percy is able to cause in a way. It's kind of holds up a mirror to him, realizing that monsters are maybe not the only thing he's going to have to kill in a way that really, in a way almost takes the action from fantasy to reality to me because celestial bronze right can only hurt monsters it can't hurt anything it only impacts the fantasy world but backbiter all of a sudden throws into relief again i think this concept that like no that's a sword and it can kill people and then we get the scene luke lures percy into the woods and tries to kill him here's something i noticed i'm just gonna bring this up and leave it here i don't know if there's that much to unpack but i they talk about about how you can summon monsters to the forest, but I didn't really fully realize until I re- reread this just now that he doesn't summon a monster to kill Percy. He summons a very he summons a scorpion, like a normal scorpion. I think it's a I think it's a real scorpion. I'm looking it up now. <laughs> the first thing that shows up it's a pit scorpion. Um, the first thing that shows up is its Magic the Gathering card. Okay, maybe it is not a real. <laughs> 
Oh, is it not a real scorpion? I don't think so. But it's not a Greek monster. It's from Magic the Gathering. Okay, so Luke has gotten really into Magic the Gathering. (laughs) (laughs) Is Magic the Gathering part of the Riordan verse? It has to be real. They're so not. They're so not real. They're from like RuneScape. (laughs) Okay, never mind. I'm not going to bring that up then. Okay. I thought that was so cool. I love Luke even more now. Oh my god. Luke's just been playing a lot of RuneScape. And again, I'm just picturing from the movie, like his full computer monitor setup where he's just... Oh yeah! You know what? Maybe the movies were onto something. Oh my god. Okay. Anyway. So he's gonna kill Percy, and he delivers his big speech. Yeah. We learn so much about Luke in the span of like two pages here. I mean, he just wants so much. Mm-hmm. On one level, it's the big picture. It's to tear down Western civilization. And yeah. He says, their precious Western civilization is a disease, Percy. It's killing the world. The only way to stop it is to burn it to the ground, start over with something more honest. So the version of Western civilization that Luke sees is far from the idealized version that Chiron has taught them. It made me curious what made Luke begin to believe that western civilization was the issue like not his father and not even like the gods but the entirety of the civilization they created like i'm assuming it's chronos in his head but i also assume it's more than that that luke has like experienced things that have confirmed what chronos is telling him and i think i'll have more thoughts on that when we get to luke's backstory yeah because i'm also interested to see how that develops because i don't have an answer for that I, I wrote down a few more quotes that he says during this scene, including the one he says right before that one you just read, which is, they should have been overthrown thousands of years ago, but they've hung on thanks to us half-bloods. And then Percy says, Luke, you're talking about our parents. As if he, like, cares about them. It feels like he's saying what he knows he, like, he still has, he's still holding on to it, you know? Yeah, I think his last conversation with Poseidon helped him hold on to it. Mm, yeah. But the idea of like, we can't talk about them like that. Those are our parents. It's like, who, what are you talking about? And then, you know, when they're talking about Luke's quest. Yeah. He says, where's the glory in repeating what others have done? All the gods know how to do is replay their past. Yeah, I, I think, I think that that line is so tied up in how badly he wants like real glory, not like praise and laurels because those rely on the approval of others like the approval of the gods and he wants the kind that lives on and changes your reality like that can't be brushed away and doesn't depend on others to continue telling it like a story that cannot be denied is what he wants that i i, I was also just writing down line after line during this I literally was like writing down this entire scene <laughs> but um he says i'm not going to end up a trophy um where's the glory in repeating what others have done and my talents were being wasted. Mm. It strikes me as well, that part of the speech is quite similar to the speech Achilles gives in the Iliad when he's talking about his undying glory. Is it? Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't, I have to compare the word, the exact wording, but the themes of like, you know, I, my talents are wasted. I can't waste my talent on mediocre things. There's no alternative to being great. And I can't do things when I'm not, when I'm not going to be great. You know, it's not worth it for me to spend time being disrespected in Achilles's case. Um, this is Achilles' speech I'm yeah. talking about. That's fun that I couldn't tell for a second. <laughs> yeah. So it is interesting, though, that Luke's, on the one hand, wants to tear down Western civilization, but on the other hand is 
still completely driven by a core cultural tenant of it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's that's actually something that I think Luke gets caught up in a lot. I feel like he's marked by Western civilization in a lot of ways. Like I, if, This is the thing about what Luke is trying to do here. He sees the issues in what the gods have created, and he wants change. But rather than looking forward or looking toward creating something new, he's always looking to the past. You know, he claims he wants to start over, but what he really wants is to return to the golden age, basically. And that idea of having something more honest, like a pure world where none of this happened, created by Kronos. It's really just the way that the world supposedly was during Kronos's reign. So it's not... Cronus's leadership that I think he wants necessarily, it's the world that he was in control of, which is known as being a period of peace and innocence when men lived like gods before the gods took over, which Chiron says is all propaganda. But if Chiron's wrong about Western civilization, why should Luke believe him? And so Luke ends up like railing against the idea of repeating what others have done while attempting to repeat what others have done both by literally trying to overthrow his father, like Zeus overthrew his father, like Kronos overthrew his father, and by trying to return them to the past. Like, he's going backwards, and he doesn't really realize it. Like, he doesn't realize he's repeating the cycle. He's blinded by the way things used to be, and the idea that the past was better than this. And so he ends up trying to recreate the corruption that led to Western civilization in the first place, rather than looking to genuinely create something new. And I think all of that is just part of it. And I think the other part is that he's found an outlet. He He's found a way out. He's found a way out and he's found at, at the same time a way to burn down the gods and specifically his father. Mm. It's, an, it's a revolution inspired entirely by the way his father has treated him and the way that his life has played out thanks to his father. And so... It's it's a very, like, deeply personal quest. It's really driven by, like, these personal wants. The desire to force the gods to look at him as he, like, claims more power than they've ever given him. It's kind of similar, again, to what Percy did with Medusa's head, but it's so much bigger than that. <laughs> but I also, I think it's, what's really interesting is that he seems willing to sacrifice his agency to get all of that. Like, there's that moment where Percy says, you're being used. And Luke doesn't deny it. He just says, look at yourself. Yeah. So in Luke's mind, like, he might be being used, but at least it's toward a future he can see. Like, a world where he has caused the change he wants to create, but also a world where glory lasts, and he's torn his father down, and he's left a mark the gods can't hope to erase. And this fight against Western civilization, like, the war against the gods, is just a messy culmination of all of it. Yeah. So, to that end... How do we actually define Western civilization? Not according to Chiron's definition, but according to our kind of greater societal definition. Historically speaking, linguistically speaking, you can't. It's impossible. All of this is an ever-growing, ever-changing entity. You know, there's no kind of like with languages, there's no way to pin down the exact moment it shifts and become something new. We can only kind of look at it in retrospect and be like, oh, I guess this was kind of a big turning point for us. What is interesting is that the concept of Western civilization, as we use it now, I think does have an origin in a sense, not rooted in history, but rooted in basically propaganda. 
I think the entire concept of Western civilization, particularly as Americans, you know, every kind of like ideology or every kind of belief system, and yes, I'm saying Western civilization is a belief system, has an origin story. And ours, especially in America, starts in ancient Greece with democracy. That's how we're taught. We are basically taught civilization began with Greece and with democracy. And I also can tell you how we got here, (laughs) which is that the New Testament of the Bible was originally written for public consumption in ancient Greek and in Latin. So what happened was um, after the Roman and eventually Byzantine empires fell, you needed to learn both of those languages, to learn to read and write in both of those languages in order to read the religious texts. And so what ended up happening was everyone who was educated hit a point where they studied Greek and Latin and created a kind of idealized perception of what ancient Greece and ancient Rome were. To the point that when they started actually doing archaeological excavations, they started digging everything up. And then they started imposing all of their beliefs onto the civilization that they held in such high esteem. Which is why I think it's really interesting that neoclassical architecture is one of the main ten- like one of the main points Karen brings up to quote unquote prove to Percy that Western civilization moves because neoclassical architecture exists because they saw all of the ancient Greek and Roman stuff that was being dug up and thought, that looks really cool. Let's build stuff like that. That's the idealized version of democracy and society. So we want to emulate that. Every, at every level you're able to look at it, it's all a lie invented by the Victorians, because of course it was. Um, <laughs> I say Victorians, it's also the Germans and the French. But as I think we're going to kind of see throughout this series a little bit, because I know already looking ahead, thinking about it, we're going to kind of see Rick actually start to deconstruct this idea. Because here's the thing is, again, all of this stuff is based on lies. So when you actually start to look closely at the foundations of the concept of Western civilization, they're inevitable cracks because, you know, a huge mistake people make looking at history is thinking about it as though, you know, the, the people in the past were part of some heightened, different, they're basically assuming that people in the past were different than we are now, which is not true. Everybody in the past was just as human as the rest of us. Every kind of thing you can imagine that's going on right now had its iterations in the past as well. So I think it's really cool to watch the growth of this concept over the series. I, I do think, I mean, I don't know Rick, and I don't really know what was going through his head as he was writing The Lightning Thief, but reading this book, I kind of see that he is starting from the same point that most of us start with when we think about these stories and we think about it, which is what we're taught, which is the myth. Civilization began in Greece. This is where everything began. This is where everything, you know, kind of relies on. And I think the further we get in this series, the more we kind of start to explore and start to realize and see all of the cracks in the foundation of that. Okay. Um, As we're sort of wrapping up The Lightning Thief, I had two questions that I wanted to ask. And so my first question is, I feel like all of the books after this have really clear parallels to a specific Greek myth. Mm. And I don't feel like this one does. And we've already talked about Perseus, but is there a different story that we're paralleling here that I'm not seeing? Um, my answer is yes and no, because I think what this is is just the hero's journey. Hmm. Pretty much 
to a T. He goes to the underworld. He emerges enlightened with a tonic that will take him to the rest. Yeah, I think if you run through every stage of the hero's journey, you you get it here. Which is really interesting because, you know, in Joseph Campbell's book, talking about this, it's called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he kind of talks about how every hero goes through the same journey. And I kind of like that symbolically for the way these stories are taking us into kind of an examination of mythology and story to start with what I think in Western civilization is considered the ultimate myth. Good answer. (laughs) Second question. There's a a bead given to all the campers at the end of the summer to represent the biggest moment or the most important moment of the summer. And this year the bead is a trident. But if you were to award the bead, what scene or what what would be on it? Any scene, any (sighs) any symbol of like what really stuck out to you in this one? I'm just trying to think like what is the thing that I most consistently come back to when I think about this book? I think it has to be Backbiter. Mm, I like that. How about you? Uh, the socks. The electric blue socks. <laughs> just for this reread, at least. Because I spent a lot of this reread thinking about them. I think them. them as red in my head. Are they blue? Yeah, they're blue. Uh, they were red. <laughs> I don't know. Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut and for sticking with us through our first step in our long journey through this amazing book series if you have any questions of your own for us to answer or uh you just want to send us your own analysis you can email us at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com or find us at pjopod on twitter instagram and tiktok yeah also these episodes are going to be posted on youtube along with the time lapse of the sketches that i made while we talked today on my channel which is pojoco p-h-o-j-o-c-o yeah, and you can also watch a pretty cool video predicting the writer's room um, that I'm not allowed to watch because I haven't finished Black Sails. But Phoebe also won't let me watch Black Sails without her, so. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I've heard it's pretty good. Okay, thank you all for listening again, um, and we'll see you next time for The Sea of Monsters. Yes, I'm very excited. I love The Odyssey. Okay, bye everyone. Bye. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.